Hi, everybody. It's Kim Winter again, Logistics Executive Group. Absolute pleasure today to introduce my guest from Sydney, Australia, Cynthia Deeran. Hey, Cynthia. Hey, Kim. How are you doing? Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Cynthia, I'm going to give you a bit of an intro because you are a particularly interesting woman. Um, disclosure, I've known you for a number of years and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that later on. But uh, really what I want to talk about today is give a bit of a background for folks around uh, some of your background, which is quite unique. Um, you're an international business strategist. You run Deeran and Associates from Sydney um, and you help companies uh, develop their business offshore, which we're going to talk about. You are also the founder and international business strategist uh, for the, for the organisation. You also are the founder for International Business Accelerator. You're a keynote speaker. You're an author, and I want to talk about the books. Uh, but your history leading up to your current consulting business is really interesting. You worked uh, with the Australian and other governments in various parts of the world, including Egypt, um, the Middle East, uh, UAE, uh, Iraq, where I believe you worked in the Prime Minister's office. You've worked uh, for the British, for the UN, for USAID, and a number of other organisations when you're in the diplomatic corps. So, hey, welcome, Cynthia Deeran. Thank you. <laughs> Great to be so, here. So tell us a little bit about your, your upbringing. Uh, you're an Aussie girl. Uh, talk, us, talk us through your upbringing, where you, where you were born, what the childhood was like, and how sure. you ended up getting into the, uh, the international scene. Well, I was born in Sydney, uh, and from the time I was very little, I was obsessed with business and obsessed with international stuff. Uh, my first recollection of a business venture was when I was about four and I stripped all the oranges off the tree in the back garden and told my parents to, like, take my tiny wooden chair and table down to the front of the road and logged all the oranges down and said, I'm going to sell these oranges. And they looked at me with pity because they knew the oranges were pretty disgusting and, you know, very tart, <laughs> and they left me to it. Uh, and they were very surprised when I came back about two hours later with $5 and all the oranges gone which, you know, I thought was okay for a four-year-old. Uh, and I was always, you know, I was fascinated by other cultures and what happened in other countries. I remember being about seven and having to do a school project on Indonesia. And when I found out I would have to read library books to do the project, instead of going there myself, I cried because I thought it was cheating. <laughs> so <laughs> this was, these are some of the early themes that kind of got me onto this uh, rather exotic journey that I've been on. But when I was seven years old, my parents had a brainwave and decided they would move to the country and bring us up in regional New South Wales. So we left Sydney, went off to the country. And look, I have to say that against expectations, that actually turned out to be a very unhappy experience for me. I got taken from Sydney, put into a country school, and I got very badly bullied. And unfortunately, that experience went on for the best part of a decade. And somewhere along the way, I lost sight of this desire that I'd had and this curiosity about other places and business and, and helping people. And when I'd been younger, I was always doing projects, you know, raising money for World Vision, doing the 40-hour famine, running a fate in my backyard with clothesline rides and bringing all these things I was interested in together. And I, when all this bullying happened, I kind of lost sight of that. And I think I kind of turned into a bit of a brat because I started to do things to prove how smart I was and to kind of say, well, look, even if you don't like me, people at school, um, I'm better than you and I'll show you how smart I am. And yeah. so for a long time, my focus really turned inwards. But in amongst all that, my family actually took me traveling when I was 12. 
They pulled me out of school for a few months. Uh, we went to Singapore. We then went off to Russia and spent some time in Moscow. And on the way, we went through India and through the Ukraine and we wound up in London and spent a few months there. And that experience, I think, really, it sort of blew my mind, you know, as a 12-year-old who'd never left the country before to suddenly see all these cultures. And it really solidified that interest that I had. And so from then on, when people started to ask me, as they do, you know, once you get into high school, so what are you going to do when you grow up? I would say, well, I'm going to be in the diplomatic corps. And to be honest, I really had no clue what it entailed at that point in time, but I thought it sounded, it sounded good. good anyway. <laughs> it did, got people off my case when they wanted to know, you know, what I was going to be. Uh, but it's very strange. I think, you know, I do believe that when you put things out there, they often have a way of manifesting themselves in the future. So I got to the end of high school. I did pretty well. I did I decided I'd do a law degree because I thought, well, I'm going to go into the diplomatic corps and I know that a law degree will help me to get there. So did that, graduated with honours, applied for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and surprisingly got in. So I became a graduate trainee with DFAT in 2001. And I went to DFAT with uh, Japanese and with French. Those were the two languages that I'd picked up because, you know, I was still interested in international stuff. Yes, you do. And again, you know, got to be very careful what you put out there because people would then ask me, as they do in default, so where do you want to get posted? And I would laugh and say, you know, very flippantly, oh, I'm flexible. I'll go anywhere except uh, Papua New Guinea or the Middle East. And so there must have been somebody listening in the background to me saying these things because when it came for time for postings to get handed out, I didn't get any of the places that I applied for, like New Caledonia, which is French-speaking, or Japan. I got offered to go to Abu Dhabi. I got called into the staffing department one day and they said, oh, we'd like you to take a posting to Abu Dhabi. And I just looked at them and said, where is that? I, th I think I'd confused it with Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. <laughs> and then I realised that that actually was not where it was and I was quite horrified. But, you know, at 23 or 24, I was more frightened of foreign affairs and trade than I was of going to the Middle East. So I kind of took a deep breath and said, okay, I will learn Arabic and go to the Middle East. Uh, I proceeded to go into language training and then I was posted off to Egypt where I worked in the embassy part of the time and studied Arabic. And then I was posted to the UAE and accredited to Qatar. So after about five years in the diplomatic corps, everybody I knew thought it was the coolest job they'd ever heard of. And I thought, you know, I should be really happy. This is, everybody thinks that this is the coolest thing they've ever heard of and it's this really high status job. But, you know, and my mother put this to me because I said, you know, I'm really not that happy. And she said, but why not? Everybody thinks it's an amazing job. And I said, yeah, mum, I know they think it's a solid gold job, but what they don't actually realise is that it's a plastic job with gold paint. And what I meant by that was I felt like I was working with people who did not share my values. I didn't feel that I was doing work that was meaningful. I couldn't see how I was going to make a difference to people in a time frame that I thought was reasonable. And I thought I just feel, feel really unhappy going to work and spending time every day and feeling as though it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really touch yeah. the site. So uh, 2005, I went off and did a Master of Middle East Politics in London. And I did that because, you know, I even though I'd been pretty freaked out by going to the Middle East, I had learnt so much while I'd been there. And I thought, well, look, I've gone and gotten all this expertise. Rather than now just going off in another direction, I should try and sort of solidify what I've done and capitalise on that. So I went off to London, did this master's, loved it, 
uh, thought about doing a PhD but decided against it. And two weeks after I handed in that piece of paper, which was my master's thesis, I had been picked up out of London uh, by a consulting firm called Adam Smith International and I was on my way to Iraq as a management consultant. And I basically got picked for that job because I had diplomatic experience and they were looking for somebody to work in the Prime Minister's office and I also had Arabic. And and interestingly, in Iraq, of all the thousands of people that were there, uh, in the US Embassy, for example, there were about 5,000 staff and there are four people who spoke Arabic. Wow. So, you know, there were not many people who could actually tick all the boxes that needed to be ticked. So, you know, a couple of weeks after being a student, and it was very weird because I'd gone from being a diplomat with people opening doors and bowing and scraping and saying, ma'am, back to, you know, a student owning two pairs of jeans and eating instant noodles and, you know, working out how I was going to pay my bills, back out into Iraq, being catapulted back into another status role. And my plan at the time was to do six months in Iraq you know, a bit of a CV build, I thought, get a bit more experience, be able to say I'm a Middle East expert. Uh, And Iraq is one of those places that has this kind of inexorable pull. I ended up there for the three and a half, four years. I was going to say the best part of four years. And so, you know, uh, as I was saying to you earlier, Kim, um, it was sort of a portfolio experience because when you go there and you work on a consulting project, you're usually attached to a consulting firm and your client is an agency. And these things last for, you know, shorter or longer. So I did a project for the British government in the Prime Minister's office, which kind of blew my mind, you know, trying to organize, reorganise or help to organise a Prime Ministerial office. Then uh, just as I was, I think I'd left off that project and I'd been back in Australia for about a week and I got a phone call from a colleague who I'd known out there who said, look, my colleague has slipped on black ice in Belgrade. Can you come and cover for him for four weeks? I need to do a UN project. And I went, oh, okay. So I hopped on a plane and went back, did that project. And then by the time that was done, I'd been picked up on another project with USAID where I was working on a, uh, to help with the program management for a, a rollout of what is called a uh, financial management system. So, you know, basically to take all the financial information, take it from legacy paper records and turn it into an online, you know, kind of, ERP, which so I'm trying real, to roll out. So that's a real globe-hopping uh, and uh, jumping exercise for probably the best side of part of about 15 years by the sound of it. Yeah, I was like, I was everywhere. So I was out there for four years, you know, worked for Department of Defence. All the Iraq project wound up in 2010. Yeah. And at that uh, point I had the opportunity to go off to Afghanistan, but to be honest, I was so homesick. I'd been away 12 years. Oh, because I didn't mention I'd also been in university uh, in France right. before I'd started going overseas. So basically 1998 to 2010, I was mostly away. And by 2010, when anybody said, so, hey, let's go somewhere else or where do you want to go next or what about moving to Afghanistan, tears would just well up in my eyes and I thought, oh, this is probably a sign that I need to stop going around the world and I just need to go home for a while and, you know, just have a bit of time at home. <laughs> so you ended up so you ended up back in the land of Oz and um, I, you've, I just wanted you to give us a quick snapshot. You you wrote a book uh, which I've read the most of and thank you for sending that to me a number of years ago uh, called Camels, Shakes and Billionaires. Uh, yes. So the title alone, have you got a copy handy I somewhere? I have got a copy. Because I know it's in about the fifth edition. It's a very popular book. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, it, it, t- it tells the story of 
of, of basically anybody wanting to do business in the Middle East region. There's, there's an amazing trove of tips in there. It's a real almanac of, of ideas and concepts and facts to help people do business. Uh, now, I be, And I believe you're doing a new edition or you're writing a new book. Well, I, I, Camel Shakes and Billionaires came out in 2015, so I've realised with horror that that's six years ago. And, look, although the basics of doing business in the Middle East are pretty much the same, the landscape has shifted. So if you look in the book now, it still references things like the global financial crisis, you know, which is about a century ago in most people's memory. There's no mention of COVID. So, you know, it's 2021. I feel like I could probably go up and up, update that now, although, you know, it's still perfectly usable, but you can tell it was written a little while ago. The new book, though, is completely different. It has nothing to do with the, with the Middle East at all, and it's called Business Beyond Borders, uh, How to Take Your Company Global. Wow. I'll put it up a bit closer so you can yeah, see. Yeah, and this good. is really, I mean, the first book is a how-to. This one is also a how-to, but it's much more general insofar as it is about how you scale a company internationally. And I've written that book because that is really, uh, although I still do Middle Eastern work now, the focus of what the company does these days is all around scaling a company international. And we wanted to, I wanted to create something that a CEO or a founder could pick up and read. Well, I know there are not too many international plane rides going on right at the moment, but it's it's supposed to be about the length that you can read, for example, on a flight from Sydney to Singapore. Okay. Or Dubai to London, and so okay. it goes. It goes over in, you know, at a fairly high level because there's an awful lot to cover. It goes through everything from why would you go global um, through the different steps of how you do it, and you know, thinking about what your vision for the company is, and then turning that into an actual plan. Looking at how you choose the right market, how you staff it, what you need to know about uh, the different cultural aspects of working overseas how you create an international budget, if you're selling goods, how you get this, that, the stuff there. Uh, and, look, I also wrote it because I have to say, as I looked around the field of international business books, I couldn't find something that I felt encapsulated everything that people needed to know in a clear and coherent way, and I wanted to, to really yeah. fill up that hole. Well, I know, your, I know your style and people by now will have understood that you're a human dynamo just by your <laughs> demeanour. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, so from my perspective, absolute free plug here because of, I know you add a lot of humour and, uh, and go down rabbit holes inside the books as well. So by all means, uh, absolute plug for people to, to line up for. Um, still, still, I think the, uh, the Camel Shakes and Billionaires is a great uh, book to read and a lot of interest there from people who are doing business or wanting to do business up here. In the new book, no doubt, when it comes out, I want to talk to you again, get a plug out for that because I know that will be a lot of assistance, not just for Australian companies, for any company wanting to do business around the world and crossing borders. Hey, so um, if, I was going to say, if people, want it, if people want an e-copy of Camel Shakes, it's on Amazon. But for anybody who listens to this show and wants a copy, if you send Kim a note, I will send you a book free of charge. Easy. People can always drop me a comment on this on LinkedIn, and uh, well, it will send we'll send them straight over to you. Hey, tell us a little bit about then uh, Darren and Associates because this is your baby. Um, you set this business up. You advise some of Australia's largest organisations, public and private. You've advised hundreds of companies and helped them in their endeavours, not only in in the in the near areas and in, in the region of APAC. 
um, and India, but also oh, clearly with your experience in the Middle East and beyond. So give us just a couple of tips about what you're doing now, what, how you're helping companies and where the demands are for organisations. And especially if we can segue into after that, uh, what companies are looking to do in Australia with the with the ruckus going on with China at the moment. Yeah, yeah, most, yeah, yeah, yeah. So look, Australia yeah. isn't getting as much export into China at the moment as it used to. So uh, it has slowed down a little bit. Look, the d- demand in that space has definitely come off uh, just because people are very nervous about the politics of doing business there and they're not sure that they're going to be able to get their stuff in. And look, what I would say on that is it really depends. There are sectors where I would kind of be raising my eyebrows if you said that you're going to start exporting there right now. So if you're in the luxury wine space, you know, I'd be directing you to look elsewhere because do you really want people to have to pay a 300% tariff on your bottle of wine? Mm, probably not. But there are other sectors, you know, and I um, have got clients that, for example, have distributors in China who they have a fantastic relationship with. And if you speak to them, they'll say, look, our business really hasn't been disrupted at all. So, I think, you know, it's very much who you know and how well set up you already are in that particular space as to whether China's a market you should look at right now. Mm. But but just to jump back to uh, to DNA and, and the story of how it came about, I was, um, look, I was back in Australia and I was running a bilateral chamber of commerce. That's what I did when I came back from Iraq and I could see that there was all this opportunity in Australia for people to take the amazing things that we create here, products and services, and to sell them internationally. And I also saw that there was a huge capacity gap. And that is backed up by the statistics because if you look at what the stats say, an absolute maximum of 5% of Australian small and medium enterprises, an absolute maximum of 5% do something internationally which means that although we are a country that says we're very internationally focused and we love to talk about how international we are, the business statistics don't really reflect that. And so, and this probably sounds kind of crazy and a bit pretentious, but, you know, when I looked at that, I was like, well, you know, I think we have a lot to offer here. And my vision is that we would see a massive jump in people selling internationally and exporting their stuff. And that was really part of what drove me to create the company because I thought I like to create an impact for companies and people on a personal level. You know, that's really important to me. But how cool would it be if, you know, we could look back in a decade's time or so and say, hey, we've seen a massive jump in numbers of companies exporting internationally because we've provided something that actually fills this gap. And so what, I mean, when I started, it was very Middle East focused because that's where I'd come from. You know, I'd done 10 years of work in on the Middle East including, you know, running this bilateral or multilateral chamber because it was the Australia Arab Chamber of Commerce and Industry. So, you know, I was working Egypt, UAE, Qatar, Iraq, um, bits and pieces of other consulting work around the region and then doing this role as the CEO of a chamber. And so we started with Middle East stuff, but, you know, the demand we discovered as we went was really for not primarily the Middle East, although we do do Middle East work, but most of the demand was for Southeast Asia, the United States and the UK, although possibly a little bit less at the moment than previously because Brexit, you know, has also made people quite nervous. And so over time we developed out a set of IP which is market agnostic. And what I mean by that is you can take 
the frameworks that we've created and use them anywhere. And and some people say, but how can you do that? Because, you know, every company is unique and every market is different. And that is true. But international expansion is kind of like maths. You can derive things from first principles or it's kind of like following a recipe. So, you know, there are a certain set of steps that or a certain set of questions that every founder who wants to take his or her company international has to ask and get answers to. And a really simple way of explaining what we do is we help founders and CEOs to ask the questions and then we take them through the process of working out the answer. And so they come out with a coherent set of answers that are based on data and evidence and not just guesswork, which, you know, as you will know, Kim, is unfortunately how a lot of people go about doing their international expansion. You know, it's kind of closing their eyes and throwing some darts and hoping for the best. And and so what we do now, the work that we do divides, broadly speaking, into two big categories. We have our done-for-you services, which are pieces of bespoke work, you know, where people will come and say, I need a two-day workshop on uh, culture in Asia or culture in the Middle East or, you know, I have people coming from the Middle East who need training on Australia or we have a company coming to say, look, we need uh, a company set up in Vanuatu or in Singapore or um, we need some help with foreign exchange. So we have some bespoke services that we do. But the core of our work is really what we call our done with you programs. And these are programs that we do with companies either in groups or individually where we take them through that process of working out what their international strategy should be, you know, what strategy is going to create a result for them, the result they want, and then helping them to actually execute that and and more or less walking with them through that process. Awesome. Well, that's really interesting because, I mean, as you know, we've had a series of, we've got a number of offices offshore um, right around Asia, uh, Middle East, uh, India, Europe. And uh, we're, we're continuously getting inquiries uh, through our trade facilitation business, which, you know, we, we come back to you and, and seek your advice and often refer companies back to you, particularly in Australia. Um, what do you find uh, are the main areas where, what sort of companies, what sort of products and services do you find are reaching outwards mainly at the moment? And, you know, has the last, the pandemic over the last 12 months, had any effect or has it been pretty much business as normal as companies seek international markets? Look, it, the answer is it kind of depends. So in terms of companies that come to us, it is so varied. Um, we have people in health services, you know, um, different kinds of health services and health products. We have people in food and beverage. We have companies in fashion. We have companies in affiliate marketing. We have companies in professional services, supply chain logistics software, um, health and, you know, kind of pharmaceutical health and beauty products, so a whole range of different things. I think probably one of the, there are two kind of trends that we've seen coming out of COVID in terms of the how easy it is for companies to internationalise. I think for people exporting goods, it's become a lot more difficult because, as you all know, supply chains are all messed up at the moment and the cost of freight has become absolutely astronomical. But I think for companies that deliver services, we've really seen the opposite. You know, 12 months ago, pretty much to the day, the vast majority of people were panicking because they suddenly discovered they were going to have to work remotely. And that was very problematic. And, you know, you will remember, Kim, that uh, people were often very resistant to working with a service provider that was somewhere else. 
a year on, people have been working remotely for a year. And what we've seen is barriers to entry have gone down because people have suddenly realized, actually, you know what, we can work remotely with a company and they can provide the same service and it really doesn't matter if we're not in the same place. And look, I'll give you a great example of that. We did a project for a defense company which is based in the US, and this was at the end of last year, end of 2020, um, based in the US, we're down here, my team and I are down here in Sydney, and the work that they want to do was based up in Malaysia. So we had team in Sydney, team up in Malaysia, and the client in the US. The client never met us in person. The client never met the people in Malaysia in person, and we did the entire project on Zoom. <laughs> the entire thing, and they gave us a five-star rating. So it's, you know, it can be done, but I think um, we've seen that become a lot easier in the last 12 months. Okay. Uh, I wanted to ask you whether, you know, any of the activity you're doing in private practice uh, still has any engagement with governments. And the reason I ask that is because, as you know, uh, yeah. Our trade facilitation and our corporate advisory uh, and M&A business up uh, up here in the Middle East uh, is engaged with a number of governments around the Gulf yeah. over the last 20 years that we've been around in this area. Um, and quite often we'll come to you on behalf of those government departments to talk about some data or some research that they yeah. can't from their own government offices uh, offshore, whether that's yeah. because they're not focused on certain commercial areas or what have you. Um, so that's where, you know, we've, we've done some work together. Um, are you finding that you're working uh, solely in the private space uh, internationally? No, or some no look, we've, we've just, we just completed a project for New South Wales government uh, several weeks ago, and we are just about to start a project for government in WA. In a couple of weeks' time, right. so and look, we're on a panel for Victoria as well. So no, um, we are still doing work in the government space, sure. uh, and it's and it's a mixture. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's probably not half half. A government makes up less than half the, of what we do, but uh, I like doing government work because I can see a way that we can put re you know high quality input and reach a lot of yeah. companies at the same time. Yeah, and I think it's interesting in various countries where we are, will often be in an event or, you know, people will say to us, oh, I can really trouble getting through to my government office to, to help me with yeah. the embassy or the trade the trade office yeah. to help me with this or that. And it's, it's a good place where private sector can in, in, interact and assist uh, with trade in that area. Um, listen, I just, I, I always ask our guests uh, about leadership and uh, about entrepreneurialism. So before we wrap, I, I just wanted to ask you in particular, in your case, given you're so trade focused, um, not only what tips you would have for other entrepreneurs. So let's cover mm -hmm. that first. And then we're going to ask you another question more related to trade. So, I mean, you've you've been a very industrious woman. You've been all around a lot of places. You've started your own business. You've run a very successful practice. Uh, any tips for entrepreneurs, whether they be Australia, whether they be elsewhere, whether they be involved in trade or supply chain or anything else? One or two yeah. tips from somebody who's been there and been through the trenches and uh, got your hands dirty, what would they be? So I would say get your vision and your strategy sorted out first. So, you know, if you don't have a North Star, if you don't know your destination, you will never know if you've arrived or not. So I think that is really important that you you set your, your direction and your plan at the start. 
you know, you, you'll have to adjust it as you go, but it's great to have something you're shooting for. Do your research. You know, whenever you are starting something new, whether it's going into a new product area or a new international geography, uh, do not just go on gut feel and things you've heard other people say and make ad hoc decisions. Get in there, roll your sleeves up and do the research. It's not sexy. It can occasionally be not that much fun, but it's really, really important and it gives you the data and the evidence that you need to make quality decisions. Uh, and thirdly, be patient. Rome wasn't built in a day and it will probably take you way longer than you think. Okay. <laughs> Specifically. And no doubt you've been to Rome, right? Uh, actually, you know, I have been to other places in Italy, but I have not yet been to Rome. It is on the list but for the post-COVID world. Okay, awesome. So so uh, on, the, on the other flip side is, you know, would your advice to people, entrepreneurs, uh, owners of businesses or corporates uh, wanting to cross borders and go international yeah. with their business, would the advice be the same or would you have any difference in there for people wanting to trade outside their, outside their own borders? Look, generally speaking, those three points hold good. So I think, you know, vision and direction is really important. Um, research is really important, even more so because you usually don't know the place you want to go to that well. And patience is really important because it's going to take even longer in a new market when to get set up because people don't know you and, you know, you have to win their trust and you have to become credible and that takes time. I think the thing I would add is get help on the ground wherever you can. You know, if you can find somebody who knows the market that you want to go into and you can work with them and have them advise you, they, and you actually take their advice, you are going to save yourself a lot of pain and you will avoid a lot of rocky mistakes um, that you might otherwise make just because you don't understand how things work in that place. And, and no doubt avoiding tears and uh, a loss of uh, valuable cash along the yeah. way. and time and opportunity. <laughs> Stuff. So uh, final question uh, from my own behalf on as a headhunter as well as our other hats that we wear, always interested to know what it is you look for. I mean, you've got a very dynamic team. I've met a few of them from time to time. Um, you must have a real focus around who you hire because they're all very, very entrepreneurial, very high energy like yourself. What are the things you look for when you're hiring people coming into your organisation? Look, it's mainly can they do the job, will they do the job, and are they going to fit with our culture? And I always take the view that, Energy and attitude are the two most important things because you can always fill up gaps in people's knowledge. You know, you can train people, you can have them watch videos, you can have them sit in with you, you can send them off to read stuff. You know, we all acquire expertise as we go, but you can't alter somebody's bad attitude easily or somebody's not sharing the values that you, you know, if people don't share your values, it's very hard to alter that. So I think I look for the type of person first and the technical competency, but most importantly, you know, are they going to fit with our team? Because, you know, I, I don't know if I've told you this, Kim, but we kind of have a no asshole rule. So that's for clients and for team. <laughs> and we only, you know, life is too short to work with people who don't get on with the team and make it great. So when we hire, we get everybody in the team to talk to the person we're hiring and we make sure that that person's going to be a fit and that they understand, you know, how we like to work and play and then they're just going to get in there and contribute and do their best. And if they can't, you know, if they can't keep their agreement for whatever reason, they're just going to let us know. Um, so it's all very kind of transparent and open and um, hard charging, I guess. And we 
we look for people who share those kind of values. None of that surprises me. And I suppose that uh, that philosophy and that uh, that culture emphasis resonates and is very similar to uh, my beloved All Blacks, uh, Rugby All Blacks in New Zealand, where they have a no idiots policy and to get into yeah. that, to, to exist in that team. So uh, yeah. well, hey, I look. think it makes Team happy place to work, right? And that's what you want if you're running a business. Yeah. Yeah, we're not here for a long time, so we might as well have a good time And uh, while we're working 24 hours a day. Hey, Cynthia Darren, uh, you know, keynote speaker, uh, practice leader, author, entrepreneur, international woman of intrigue. Uh, thanks so much, time for, uh, for giving, thanks so much for giving up your time today. And I know you've got a busy, uh, busy night ahead of you. You've got other meetings lined up this evening so uh thanks so much for joining us really appreciate the input well i want to hear about it when the next book comes out and uh, we'd love to get you back and have a chat about that book in particular absolutely thanks for having me on the show thanks cynthia and to our audience i hope that cynthia has been able to share some insight for you on international trade and business across borders um obviously we're, we're thankful again to all of the first responders to everybody involved in keeping us safe and the vaccinations now going out there uh, to all the health and wellness workers. Uh, thank you. Uh, deep respect for everything that you do around the world. Um, please stay safe, keep distance, wear a mask, wash your hands. Um, peace to everybody. Thanks, Cynthia.